listening to the Lima Community Church Podcast. The following was recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. Well, growing up, my dad was a pastor in the Methodist Church, which meant that I was a pastor's kid. I'm sure that different people have different experiences that define what it means to be a pastor's kid. You know, maybe some people love it and other people hated it. But generally speaking, I very much enjoyed being the son of a pastor. Being a pastor's kid came with certain entitlements that I enjoyed. I enjoyed knowing what the church looked like after all the lights had been turned off. I enjoyed playing hide and seek with siblings when no one else was there. When you're a pastor's kid, you know the church building as intimately as anyone, and especially these old Methodist churches with their tall steeples and high ceilings, the stained glass windows, the candles, the pews. Even as a kid, you're aware of the awe, the mystery, the holiness of spaces like those. You also become keenly aware of where certain things are stored or hidden, like the leftover communion elements. At our church, we used a loaf of bread and grape juice, and I remember getting home from church one Sunday afternoon and being scolded for having found the bread and grape juice, and all of us kids were chasing each other through the pews, trying to devour it, running around the sanctuary with the body and the blood of the Lord like a bunch of barbarians. You also pick up on where things are stored for Sunday school. I remember being at church after hours as dad was working in the office and running upstairs to where all the children's Sunday school classrooms were. And for whatever reason, in my memory, I always recall that space during golden hours. The sun is going down and the last light of the day is streaming into the windows, illuminating an otherwise dim classroom. But just outside those classrooms in the hallway, lived a little cart that housed the snacks. And so help me, to this day, I'm convinced that the goldfish crackers that come from those massive wholesale cartons just taste better than the ones that come in the little bags. I also remember running into my dad's church office before being dropped off at school and asking if he'd administer communion for us before I went off to kindergarten for the day. Now you may be thinking, my gosh, all this kid ever did at church was try to find food, which probably isn't wrong, but I think even then I felt a sense of the mystery, the wonder that surrounded the Eucharist, communion, the Lord's Supper. And I loved living at the church. I loved the mystery, the wonder, the ritual, the familiarity. I loved coming and going and gathering back together week in and week out. I loved being brought up and brought in by the church. But a funny thing happens that I think you can only maybe really appreciate when you get a little older. If you've grown up in the church, you realize you don't remember the first time that you heard the story of David and Goliath. You don't remember the first time you heard the story of Noah's Ark or Jonah and the whale. You don't remember the first time you heard the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 or walking on the water. Because those sweet ladies in the nursery were reading us these stories before we had developed the capacity for long-term memory. It's as if these stories become etched into our being. We don't know how or when we acquired them but they've shaped our lives and our imaginations from before we could remember. And what a gift, right? 
What an absolute gift for those of us who grew up in the church, living and breathing the narratives of our faith. But as the old adage goes, familiarity breeds contempt. The struggle with such familiarity, particularly with the scriptures, is that we're prone to losing the sense of curiosity and wonder that the scriptures inspire. That is, when we're not careful, we can be tempted to think that we have wrung every last drop of wisdom from the scriptures, forgetting that the word is a well that does not run dry. Forgetting that the scriptures never stop ceasing to break in and surprise us with God's character. So maybe all of this is just to say that in our summer sermon series, we're looking to revisit these foundational stories of our faith with the hope that the spirit might be revealing something new to us, that we might again be captured by the awe and the wonder, the curiosity of the stories that define our faith. So let's turn to our Sunday school story this morning. We're going to be spending some time with the parable of the workers in the vineyard. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to follow along. This is uh, Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 16. This is our, our gospel reading for the morning. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again, about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. At about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Often my anxiety in reading scripture is that my familiarity with the plot, the movement of events in the narrative, might blind me from the meaning or new insights. I worry that because I know what's going to happen next, I might fail to appreciate just how shocking, surprising, or troubling the scripture actually is. And by all accounts, this is one of those parables that is shocking, surprising, and troubling. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Holding a bachelor's of science degree in business administration, I can tell you with whatever authority that grants me that this business model is no good. (laughs) However holding a master of arts degree in theological studies, I can tell you with whatever authority that grants me that this business model is still no good. It doesn't make sense. 
In a world of merit-based seniority and tenure, this story is completely backwards. And if you don't believe me, if you're in charge of payroll at your workplace, try pulling a stunt like this and see how it goes over. (laughs) And yet, strangely, how does this parable start? Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is like which at least in the gospel of Matthew is a phrase that Jesus uses quite a bit. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a sower. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, like a treasure, a merchant, an estate owner, a king, a traveler. And as a people who are committed to living as citizens, not of the kingdom of this world, but of the kingdom of God, we ought to listen carefully when the king tells us what the kingdom is like. So Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. So the landowner in this parable goes out to hire workers for his vineyard. He does some wheeling and dealing with the workers. They agree on what seems like a fair wage to all parties involved and they get to work. But now Every few hours, the owner keeps going back out to hire more workers, which is fine if there's work to do and there's people willing to do it. Bring it on, no problems. So the owner keeps doing this even into the cool of the evening, but hey, no harm, no foul. The workers are thinking, they'll get theirs and I'll get mine. So finally, it's closing time and this is where, this is where the plot thickens. This is where things get a little spicy. And bear in mind, This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. You wanna know what the character of God is like? It's like this. The landowner calls in the workers, makes the guys that had been working all day go to the end of the line and watch as he divvies out a full day's pay to the guys that only worked a few hours in the cool of the evening. What's wrong with this guy? But maybe at this point they start thinking, hey, if he's this generous with the guys that only worked an hour, I imagine we're gonna get a pretty sweet bonus. So feeling pretty good, the workers at the end of the line step up to receive their just rewards and what do they get? They get what they had agreed upon at the beginning of the day. How maddening, how unfair, how unjust, right? So they do what we all do. They start complaining, telling him off, making sure that he knows how corrupt and backwards his business practices are. So what does the landowner say to him? He says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus says, you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? Fine. God is like a vineyard owner. And how unfair is God, right? Usually when we think of the phrase, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, we tend to think of something like getting in line at the buffet, right? If I discipline myself and I choose to go last, I'll be rewarded by God for having let others go first. And when we get to that better, that heavenly buffet, well, I'll be first in that line. But that isn't this story. That's not what's going on here. You would think that the virtuous ones are the workers that chose to do a good in early days work and that they'd be rewarded all the more for that. But that's not the case. 
the ones that seem to be rewarded are the ones that showed up late to the party. It's backwards. Where's the virtue? Where's the merit? Where's the sense of justice? How incredibly frustrating. And yet, the kingdom of heaven is like this. So if we can say that the kingdom of heaven is not like our merit-based or utilitarian economy, well, then what is the economy of God like? If God's economy seems to be disinterested in seniority or the things that we think we've earned, then what does this parable tell us that the kingdom of God is like? For starters, I would note that the landowner sees what's going on here. No one's pulling a fast one on him, right? He comes back for more workers and he says, hey, why are you standing here idle all day? Subtext, you're lazy. I need workers. The landowner seems very much aware that the folks that he's calling to work his vineyard aren't the most ambitious or motivated workers, and yet he calls them to the work all the same. Not only does the landowner recognize that these aren't the most motivated workers, but he chooses to rock their world with generosity. Imagine the gift of a full day's wage having only worked one hour. I'm tempted to make a pastor joke, but I'll move along. <laughs> to the workers who are out in the field all day, this is nothing short of a scandal. And by any other standards, this kind of generosity is scandalous. But this scandal of grace is what we have to reckon with in our parable this morning, and it's what we have to reckon with in the gospel. If God is like the owner of the vineyard, then we have to reckon with the fact that the generosity of his grace is extending to the people that maybe we don't think have earned that grace. The landowner says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious because I am generous? Often when, when I think of envy, I think of that dark feeling that arises when I want the thing that someone else has and I have not. Someone else has it, I don't, but I want it. To be clear, this story is not that. This is envy that someone else has the thing but, that I have, but I don't think that they've earned it. This is the kind of envy that disdains generosity because it recognizes that the thing that I had to work for, someone else got for free, and I don't think that's fair. This kind of envy recognizes that the giver of the gift doesn't treat everyone the same. This kind of envy recognizes that the giver of the gift doesn't treat everyone the same, and that's a tough pill to swallow. That's the scandal of grace. Through this parable, we learn a strange reality about the kingdom of God. We learned that some have worked much and some have worked little, and however unfair that may seem, he gives all the same. I don't think it's a coincidence that this passage leads us narratively to the cross. 
The passage that follows this parable in the text is the passage where Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. And what is the cross of Christ other than the generosity of God's grace being made manifest in the world? Through the cross of Christ, we learn that God's grace has nothing to do with how much or how little we think we've earned God's grace. And it certainly has nothing to do with how much or how little we think someone else has earned God's grace. If we're to take the principles of this parable and apply them to the cross, we learn that the generosity of the cross, the generosity of God's grace is given to all regardless of perceived merit. It would seem that the landowner rewards, that is God's grace is given out of sheer generosity, out of sheer abundance, just because, just because God loves to give. I think that this passage speaks to two groups of people. And I, I think the first are like me, those of us that grew up in the church. We know where the best hiding spots are. We know where the goldfish are hidden. We know the families in the church that have come and gone through the years. We've seen it all in church is as second nature as breathing. You might even say that we've been here since the beginning of the workday. Like the story of Jonah and the people of Nineveh, we're reminded that God will use the people that he wants to use regardless of how we feel about it. This parable reminds us that just because we've been in the field a little bit longer doesn't mean that we get to determine who gets paid what. God has not given us the task of determining who gets to be the recipient of his generosity. He makes quite clear in this parable that he'll do what he pleases with the things that belong to him. For those of us that grew up in the church, I think it's easy to resonate with the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. He does the things that he ought to do, and yet it's his rebellious brother that gets celebrated just for coming home, just for doing the thing that the older brother has always done. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. For those of us that have grown up in the church, we would do well to hear the word of caution that this parable brings us. We are a people committed to a life of praise. We are a people committed to a life of thanksgiving and celebrating the generosity of God. The second group that I want to address are those that maybe you feel like you've shown up an hour before closing and you've been surprised by the manager to have gotten a much bigger paycheck than you bargained for. I want to say to you that that's the real deal. You can take that to the bank and you can cash it. Furthermore, whatever grumbling or complaining that you've heard from those of us in the back of the line, I want to apologize. To those of us who haven't spent our entire lives in the church, it's possible that you've been made to feel like an outsider, like you haven't earned the thing that you've received. Well, maybe it'll come as some comfort for you to know that none of us have. That's just the nature of God's grace. Whatever you feel about yourself, 
or whatever you've been made to feel about yourself, the generosity of God's grace is coming for you. And the reality is that there is work to do. The owner of the vineyard is calling us all to get to work, but this work is not a metric. It's not a measure by which we earn our grace or salvation. The work is joy. Earlier in his gospel, Matthew writes, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. A couple years back when Pastor Doug's daughter, Mikhail was preaching the week after Christmas, she delivered a, a beautiful message that has resonated with me since then. In it, she said, Jesus doesn't need us to work for him. Jesus desires us to work with him. The work is not a means to an end. It's not a means by which we earn our retirement package that is eternity in paradise. The work is the end. It is the gift. It's the recognition that Christ is calling us to establish the kingdom of heaven here and now. And in that kingdom, we don't spend time complaining about who got what, because that's not the point. There's a theological term that uh, has been used occasionally from this stage. Uh, we may be somewhat familiar with it. That is eschatology. Eschatology refers to the things of the end times. And the question that eschatology primarily seeks to answer is, what is the kingdom of heaven like? So when Jesus starts this parable, he's making an eschatological claim. He's saying, when the kingdom of God is made fully manifest and all is redeemed, this is how you can expect things to function. This is the nature of God in the nature of God's kingdom. Jesus gives us a vision of what God and his kingdom are like. The eschatological claim, the vision of the kingdom is that the people of God don't complain. We don't grumble about what we feel entitled to. In fact, the people of God have a remedy to complaining. It's called praise. In the kingdom of heaven, we don't begrudge the generosity of God's grace. We rejoice and celebrate that God's economy is greater than our narrow imaginations. So may our prayer be today that God teaches us what it is to be a people of praise. May we learn what it is to live in the gratitude of having been given more than we've earned. May we learn what it is to rejoice with those that have been shown generosity. And would we be reminded that God's grace is surprising? Isn't it strange? Isn't it funny who God chooses to use and how God chooses to move? May we learn to be delighted by the surprise of his generosity. If you've heard truth this morning, would you say amen? Uh, would you stand and join me in prayer?
Father God, thank you for the gift of life this morning. We thank you that you are calling us. Thank you for the work. Our prayer is that you would broaden our imagination. Would you give us compassion for the stranger? Would you give us a the capacity, the humility to be surprised by the ways in which you are moving in the world? Would you give us the courage to live in the adventure that you've called us to? What a strange thing it is to be a follower of you. Would you teach us today to live in that oddity, to live in a different kingdom, in a different economy? thank you for the gathering of your body. And we pray this all in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, visit limacommunitychurch.com.